0: All right, well, good morning, Salem. How's everyone doing? Great, great. It's awesome to be here this morning with you guys. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. So, hey, uh, I want to start with this. When I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on uh, the topic of envy. I don't remember what it was for. Uh, I think it was some type of missions class. I had to write a uh, paper on envy, which, by the way, an interesting way to look at this is envy is the fear uh, of never attaining that which you hope for. Right, so that's kind of a unique thing, right? Uh, and uh, and I read a part of this book. It was a very thick book, so I didn't read all of it. By a guy, uh, check this out, his name was Helmet Shoke. So if you are looking for kids' names for the future, um, you guys can throw that into your your bucket list, right? Helmet Shoke. But one of the things he said, I thought this was fascinating. He says that whenever a person enters into a room, it is impossible uh, to not compare yourself to other people. It's impossible. So as you walked into the church this morning, uh, we do this naturally, probably unconsciously most of the time. We look at people and we go, uh, and this is a common thought for me, wow, that person has way more hair than I do, right? That person's very fit, Uh, that person is younger, that person is older, right? Um, Right, like there's all these different ways in which we we walk into a room and we begin to compare ourselves to other people, which leaves us oftentimes feeling uh, maybe a little insecure. So if you ever walk into a room or into a building and you look at people and you you ever wonder like, man, are these my people? (laughs) Like am I in the right place? (laughs) Like I feel like I'm, I'm very different from these people. So, like, is is this is this where I belong? It's a very fundamental human question that resides deep in the human heart. Is this where I belong? My freshman year of college, I uh, was going to the start at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And, uh, and I joined a group called the Navigators, which is a campus ministry on campus, and, and I showed up for my very first, it was called Nav Night, and it was on Friday nights, and everybody comes together, and I show up in this room, and there's 400 people in this room, and as I'm looking around, what do I do? Wow, that dude's, that dude's an athlete. <laughs> He's way bigger than me. Uh, that person has hair. I don't. That person, you know, and we just begin to compare. And all of a sudden, I'm wondering, I'm asking myself this question, do I fit here? Is this where I belong? Is in this group? And it's very easy to feel separated or alienated in this moment, right? It's very, very simple. But then this guy, John, he gets up and he starts uh, his, his time uh, with this. He says, hey, my name is John. Welcome to the Navigators. Here... We are students, and we are adults working together. Uh, We are athletes, we are musicians, um, we are artists, We are creators, Uh, we are architects, we are communications majors, right? Uh, We are horticulture major, which, just so you know, that was my very first major, horticulture. Uh, We're all these different things. And he keeps going, and going, and going, and going, and he keeps going for like three minutes. And then he takes this deep dive, because as you're listening to John talk, what you're hearing is that, wow, the people in this room represent this massive conglomerate really, uh, of a whole variety of things. And I began to grow at ease. But then he went deeper and he said, we are people who struggle with depression. Welcome to the Navigators. We are people who struggle with lust. Welcome to the Navigators. We are people who struggle with anger and fear. Welcome to the Navigators. And it was in this moment All of the insecurity inside of me just kind of vanished and I had this this moment, I was like, I fit here. I fit and here's why. Because John removed all of the pretense. He took everything, he, he listed every possible thing that as a person walks into a room that you could possibly use to divide yourself from another person, he took all of those things and he put them aside and he made it about one thing, he made it about Jesus. this is who we are. Together we worship Jesus, right? And I don't know if you know this, but I think that's exactly what Paul is going to do in our passage this morning in chapter 2 verses 11 through 12, or 22. What he's going to do is he's going to remove all of the pretense. He's going to remove all of the things that would divide us as people, and he says we're going to make it about one thing, Jesus. That's what we're going to do, Right? And so that's what Paul is going to do uh, this, this morning. Um, and in, in order just to help you understand, so just so you guys know, um, it's said by many people that this passage, this passage, 11 through 22, is potentially one of the most significant, if not the most significant passage in the New Testament about the church, so there's a lot that's going to happen in this in this passage, but I want to start just by helping us understand. If we come back to our clue board, um, is helping us understand the rubric for how this actually fits into the story. So I kind of want to summarize at the forefront what we're going to find in in the text this morning. Okay, so if you remember in our story, right, the Bible story, it starts with this character named God, right, and God is is really three equal divine persons, right? So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, And then what happens in this story is that as, as Adam and Eve are introduced, as humanity is brought into the story, in the garden, right, Adam and Eve have a choice to make, whether they obey or disobey. They disobey, right? And what happens is they create this massive chasm between God and mankind, this is, this is uncrossable, okay? And so you have God here and you have man here, right? And if you think about this, there's these groups of people. And how the Old Testament kind of works, right, Is you begin, is that God in the very beginning of the story says, I am fully aware. This did not catch me by surprise. By the way, I am omniscient. I know all things. I knew this was going to happen. And so from the very beginning, he said, I am going to make this right. I'm going to make everything that is wrong and I'm going to make it right but not right now, and there's this process. So what he kinda does is he bypasses this gap for a moment, and what he does is that he selects this group of people who are called the Jews, okay? They are the Hebrew people, uh, the Jewish people. And God says, I'm going to use you, this group of people. I'm going to put my love on you. I'm going to select you and I choose you. But the whole purpose of me choosing and selecting you is so that in the future, I will actually use you to bless all of the nations. And so we come over here and you have this word Gentiles, right? And Gentiles is this is this collection of people for everybody who's not God's chosen people. So you have Jews, very small number, Gentiles, very massive number, right? And in fact, when God chose the Jews, he actually told them in Deuteronomy 7, he said, it's not because, do not think it's because you are more numerous than other people. In fact, you are much smaller, And this is the pattern of God, right? Is that God chooses the small to shame the big, the weak to shame the strong, right? This is what God does. And so he chooses these people. But not only are they a small group, they're also a stubborn group. Because in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, he says, do not think that I chose you because of your righteousness. In fact, you're a very stubborn group of people, And the passage that follows right after that, if you know the story, is the golden calf. And so if that tells you anything about what God knows about these people. So qualifications, they're loved by God, but they are small and stubborn. (laughs) Loved by God, small and stubborn, right? But Genesis 12 is this reminder, is that I'm going to use you to bless the nations, Now, it's significant because the Jews, they have this relationship, right? They have a lot of privileges because they've been given the law. Uh, They've been given circumcision. If you don't know what that is, talk to your parents. I'm not going to go into that. Um, And they've been given, right, the temple, the sacrifices, all of those types of things. And so it's a very special privilege to have all that. At any given point in the Old Testament, these people, these foreigners could join in and become a part of the Jewish community if they abandoned all of their gods and if they adopted all of the practices and worship forms of Judaism. They could do that and they could become part of the family, but they weren't really fully a part of the family, right? It's kind of like they were just there and, you know, they were treated okay, but that was always, they could do that. But here's what happened, is that in time, right, is that as the Jews have all these special privileges, it begins to build inside of them. It's this sense of superiority. You see, you guys don't have anything, but we, oh man, we are God's chosen people, right? We have the Torah, we have circumcision, we have the temple, we have all of these things, and it begins to build this sense of superiority, right? And so it turns out to be kind of a bad thing in the end. And as the story goes, Jesus then eventually enters into the scene, right? And Jesus dies. And what he does is that he bridges this gap between God and man. So this vertical component, this, this massive separation between God and man is no longer. It's kaput, right? It's been bridged by Jesus. But Jesus' death is not just for the Jews. This is the mystery, is that he also died for all of the gentiles. And here's what's crazy, right? It's because there was this massive vertical separation. There was at one point a horizontal separation between Jews and gentiles, right? Because you're this is what you guys are bad and we are the holy separate people over here. But in Jesus' death, what he actually does is that he actually creates a whole new family, a whole new fam for short, right? He creates a whole new family, right? He takes all of these people and all of these people, the small number and the massive people, and he begins to knit them together, and he creates this whole new group, of people. And that's what we're going to find. And the big idea this morning is really this, is that Jesus brings us peace. Because what we're talking about here, this, this main idea is really, is that there's peace that's involved for all Christians. And Jesus brought peace because he broke down a dividing wall of hostility, whatever that is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. right? And he, he makes this brand new family. He creates. Not only does he tear down, but he creates something new. And now all of us are together. We're not Jews. We're not Gentiles. We are one new family under God's rule. Okay? So let's jump into the text this morning. You can probably see why this is going to be a, a really important text for the large C church at, in general. Uh, starting at verse 11 here's what it says this is is we're gonna talk about the new we here this relationship between God and the Gentiles he says therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision so what he's saying is that the Jewish people who are separate and holy labeled the Gentiles and said you're those people you're uncircumcised, that's gross, that's bad, that's wrong, that's, that's not holy, right? So they're labeled as these people. But by the way, the circumcision is made by the flesh of hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, right? He basically says that you had no relationship with God. There is no we between you and God. There is no us. There is no we. So you're separated from that. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which basically means you have no family. You don't belong to the family. You are not a part of the family. Right? You're not a part of it but that also that you're strangers to the covenants of promise, which basically means like you guys didn't even know, well, you don't even know what God is planning to do. You don't even know that there's hope to life. All you do is you wake up and you grind through the day and you're like, oh, life is so hard. And at the end of the day, there's no hope for you. It's a bleak, 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 dark picture for people without Christ, right? That's who he says, this is who you were. I mean he uses these words, remember. Like, okay, so, so Paul visited Ephesus, right? Paul visited Ephesus, and then he goes away. Eventually he's arrested and he goes into prison in Rome. And it's from that prison, several years later, that he reminds the Ephesians. He says, by the way, don't forget. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you were before Jesus. Remember. Remember, always, don't forget. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. In fact, it doesn't matter if, if 20 years have passed. Do not forget who you were before Jesus. It's this reminder, as if we really need to be reminded of the things that are painful in our past, right? We all have different stories, And and each part of the stories raise up different feelings. I know this is a terrible example, but I think it's worth sharing. Uh, When I grew up, I I grew up in in Nebraska. And when people um, would ask me where I'm from, they'd say, hey, where are you from? And I would say, "Uh, I'm actually from Nebraska. And they would go, ugh. And I'm like, what do you mean, ugh? (laughs) Did not God, God created mountains and he created plains. Come on, people. Like, all creation is beautiful. And they're like, ugh. I had one person, I kid you not, one person asked me if we had running water. I said, yeah, we do. The Platte River. It runs. You know, it keeps going. Like, there's these parts in our stories that, that stir up these different emotions inside of us at times, which is hard, right? And, but Paul says this is far deeper than anything like that, right? Remember who you were before Jesus, right? That's a big deal because, and even though it's painful, it's dark, it's bleak, it's, it's a portrait with no color, it sets up the stage for God's goodness in verse 13, It says, but now, right, that's the contrast, because that's who you were then, but guess what, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? The far off people are the Gentiles, like they were totally separated, alienated, they didn't even know about the promise of the good news, they didn't have any of that, and yet God brought them near, right? And so there's this whole new we, this whole new element that we get to rejoice in community as Gentiles, because this is who we are. We're not from Ephesus, but guess what? We are in this category, right? And we rejoice, and we say, man, there is now a relationship between God and me. There's a whole new sense of us. That's incredible. That is an incredible, amazing thing, right? That's so, so good that we've been brought near. And so what we find is that as a result of Jesus' death, this vertical component has been taken care of. Mm-hmm. We now are bridged, right? We have access to God and with God, uh, and it's a whole new we thing. We're a part of that, right? But here's the problem, is that there's still tension and conflict between man. There's this horizontal divide that is still happening. And so what Paul then goes on to describe if to help us understand, it's not just about this new we. It's not just that you and I are now in right relationship with God. It's actually more significant than that. It's that you're a part of a whole new family. You're a part of a whole new family. Check this out in verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace. Okay, we're going to come back to that word because that's, again, probably that most important word here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making... Peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, I want you to look at a couple of words here in this text um, because they, they contrast each other well, right? And the first one is the idea of broken down, right? It says that He has made us both one. He has broken down in His flesh, right, and through His death on the cross, the dividing wall. Of hostility. What in the world is that? Okay. What in the world is that? Well, um, in in an Orthodox synagogue, you will find what's called uh, an umchitsa, an umchitsa, which is a Hebrew word for a wall that goes between uh, where there's men and there are women. Okay. Uh, And so they're very familiar with this. You walk in. In fact, if you go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem at the temple, you will find that there is a wall, a man-made wall that is built that separates where the women go to touch the wall and where the men do. So this is very common in these days, okay? Um, Also, in the temple, there was this, this kind of this big wall that separated what was called the court of the Gentiles from the holier places, right? And so Gentiles could come to the temple, but they could only, only go in this one space and they could go no further. So if you are a Gentile trying to enter into this community, you are super familiar with walls, (laughs) right? And it feels like a wall of hostility, okay? You're super familiar with it, but Paul here, even though those are likely in mind, what Paul is really referring to here is this metaphorical wall that really is described in the Mosaic Law, right? It's described in the Mosaic law because the law itself was offense, right? So if you remember, uh, the Pharisees were so concerned with living uh, within God's will and not like disobeying and they were so in tune with that, that they actually did what they call fencing and they built these other traditions and, and right, like these things that I'm supposed to follow, rules and ordinances around the law. And the idea, with great intentions, is if I don't cross those boundaries, then I won't cross these boundaries. So it's really good intentions. But the law itself was given by God to Israel as a way to be a fence. It separates the, the Jews from the Gentiles. Right, because when I'm doing these things, I'm abiding by these things. What I'm doing is I'm actually I'm, I'm keeping myself separate from the rest of the unholy heathen people, right? And so it acts as its own fence. And over time, like we said, is that these things that were very special to the Jews developed inside of them this sense of superiority. I am better than you, and I look down on you, which is very normal, it's very natural, even for, even for righteous things. Uh, sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think that to be human is to be divided. Because it goes all the way back to the beginning. If you go back to all the way back to Genesis, right? Like you go to the garden, and then Adam and Eve, and it's in that moment where they take the bite, and then God comes along, and God's like, "What in the world happened?" And Adam's like, "Division. I'm not with her." And then she's like, "She's like, no. It was the, it was, it was the serpent, not me. Division." And all of a sudden, at the end of that, you're like, Wait, "Who's with who? Are you with me? Are we actually okay? Like, what's like, like, what community? Like, do I belong here?" It's division right and so circumcision in the law it's not surprising then that they became a symbol for something so much deeper in the human heart which is our need and our disposition to divide to separate ourselves from people that we don't want to be associated with, right? Um, and, And this is interesting, right? The text tells us that not only did Jesus tear down this wall, so you think about it, right? So there's this dividing wall of hostility, right, which is the law, and so Jesus comes along, and he dismantles the wall, like he takes it all down, he dismantles the whole thing, okay? It takes it down. It says that he did that by abolishing uh, these commandments and ordinances, right? And so, here's this question. Like, when you think about Jesus, in Matthew, he said, Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And here, Paul says, Jesus abolished the law. So, who's right? (laughs) Well, <laughs> like they're they're both right. Okay, they're both right. And what's happening here uh, is that we're we're nullifying the Old Testament covenant that is symbolized by the law right? We're nullifying that. Jesus is inaugurating this this new covenant in His blood. The result of that, right, is that He is actually rendering all of the superiority that the law gave the the Jews, He's rendering that inoperative. That no longer is a big deal for you because guess what? Now the law and, and all of the Scripture is for everybody because guess what? Everybody gets Jesus, and that's what he's doing. He's rendering that inoperative, right? right? And that's, that's a really big thing because the law was part of the prized possession for the Jewish people. And so what Jesus is doing, right, is that he's actually moving and shifting them from the law of the Old Testament to the law of Christ. He's removing all, all of the pretense. He's saying, let's take away everything that would divide us and let's focus on one thing, the gospel. Let's focus on me, Let's focus on Jesus, right? That's what happens. So Jesus tears down and divides this wall. So here's what's, here's what's crazy, right? So you and I, so you got, you got person here and person over there, and Jesus enters into the story, and there's this wall between us, right? All of a sudden, that wall just gets <laughs> dismantled, right? That's a weird noise, okay? So it just gets dismantled, and there it is, and I'm here, and I'm looking, all of a sudden, I'm looking at the first time, for the first time, these people who are behind the wall, and I go, well, oh, they don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't worship like I do. Uh, they have different political stance than I do. Uh, they have a different vaccine stance than I do. right? And all of a sudden, we begin to see this moment. And you're like in this now what stage. You're like, what happens now? And it becomes this weird kind of spiritual like middle school dance. right? We're like you, okay? Hey, friend. Jesus, look, we're getting along, right? And we do this across this rubble right here, right? And this is wall that's touring down. He removes the pretense. He says, "Let's make it about one thing. Let's make it about Jesus." But here's what's so great: is that Jesus doesn't stop with this idea of just removing a wall, right? Because if I just remove the wall, guess what? I can still stand here and I can look at those people, and I can never cross that boundary, right? I can do that, right? I can, I can totally, I can totally do that, right? They don't look like me. I don't want to. But what God says, what Jesus says, is, is that not only, right, not only have I torn down this wall, guess what, I'm gonna build up and I'm gonna create something new. And so he takes these people and he begins to knit them together with all of their unique differences, their different languages, their different like skin colors, all of these things. And he weaves them together and we begin to celebrate those things. Why? Because before Jesus, we were separate. But now in Jesus, the church is complete. We gain by celebrating diversity in these things, right? He knits us together, right? And the result of all this is that in Jesus' death is this last line. Not only does he he break down, but he's creating this new family. The result of everything that he's done is that he kills the hostility, right? So he looks at everything that's here, right? And killing the hostility is about the death that happens in his body on the cross. So everything that that was divisive, that's considered hostile, is now dead. Where is it? It's in the grave. It's in the grave. The only thing that should come back from the grave in this story is Jesus. He says everything that divides us is in the ground. It's dead. It's gone. It's killed, right? That's the thing right and yeah if i'm honest about myself and if we're honest together we classify we categorize and we criticize you name it we divide over it we ca- we divide over complicated things and we divide over really small and simple things and here's what happens guys when we do this it's like we look at this wall that jesus has torn down and you look at your neighbor you look at the wall, and you try not to make eye contact with them. Hey, hey, it's nice to see you. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, good, I'm good. No, no, I'm fine. Yeah, thanks. It's, yeah, yeah, happy Sunday. And we begin to take these, these boulders and these rocks, and we begin to rebuild between us that which Christ tore down a powerful image as we begin to think about this. Now I want you to put your mind into the shoes of the person who's now on this side of the wall because what's happened is that this wall that goes up now leaves me feeling alienated and separated and we're right back to where we started. Right? That is what's happening in this text, right in, 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 this, in this world, right? And guys, here's this question, right? If, if people come into the church where Christ is supposed to be the head, and if they look at it and go, "Man, I don't fit here, where in the world are they supposed to fit? Where in the world are they supposed to fit? I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't increase the amount of barriers, He removes them. Jesus removes barriers. In some sense, Jesus is being divisive against being divisive. It's a powerful image. I want you to check out this this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, if our churches are divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, he would say that our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is called into question. That's a powerful statement, because really what we're saying then is if we're divided, we know that the gospel is divisive. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. That is divisive. But if we're divided internally on anything other than Jesus, if we are hostile towards each other, then we do not understand the gospel. And Jesus' death is called into question in our beliefs and in our attitudes. Why? Because there's peace. Because there's peace. Look at this in verse 17. It says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So it's significant, right? Is that peace to the far off, right? That's the Gentiles. They were separated. Peace to those who were near, right? That's the Jews because they had all special privileges. But it's a message for both people. And what is the message? It's peace. The message is peace. Right? For he himself is our peace. What, is that, what does that mean, peace? Is peace the absence of conflict? Is that what it is? You see, sometimes I think in life, um, we feel something towards another person. We see it in another person, and we want to say something about it. And so I, like, I'm about to say it, but then I bite my tongue, and you catch it, and you kind of gulp it back. Have you ever done this? Right, Like you're like, um, mm, ouch, Right? are you okay? Yeah, I'm good, I just bit my tongue. Yep, mm-hmm, right? right? It happens in life, we hold back. But here's my question, does that mean that there's peace between you and me just because I didn't say anything? No. Yesterday I was watching the, the Husker game, which was just painful. And, and we got to the point where we were just right neck and neck and we were winning and losing, winning and losing against Michigan, who's ranked number nine, right? And we get in and all of a sudden Michigan scores. And this player from Michigan, if you like Michigan, I'm sorry, we can talk later, right? He comes in to the end zone and he scores and he pretends to eat a corn on the cob <laughs> in front of all of the people at Memorial Stadium. And in that moment, I was like, dude. If I still had my high school football pads, and if I could somehow magically leap through the window or through the TV with all of my high school linebacker glory and deck you as hard as I could, I'm in. I'll do it, (laughs) right? But I can't do that. I can't do that. So here's my question though. Does that mean that we still have peace? No. Because peace is about so much more, right? Peace is about the idea of shalom. It's the absence of conflict, but it's so much more. Check out this quote. I love this. This is from Cornelius Plantinga. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, in all creation, in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, right? This is how we get to participate in this. Remember Jesus' great words uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, or even the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, I want you to notice something here, there's a distinction between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, because a peacekeeper is someone who stands on this side of the wall, sees the wall, sees them, and says, wow, I acknowledge you, long distant cousin. And we, we keep the peace, but a peacemaker is someone who does this, and embraces the family and celebrates together, whatever our differences are, because we are united in one thing, which is Jesus. I love this line, peace or shalom is the culture of the kingdom. Because as these kingdoms overlap, as that's been a theme throughout all the New Testament, but especially in Ephesians, as these, as these kingdoms overlap, you and I, the church, are now the agents of bringing peace the world where we remove barriers, not build them, right? This is what we live in. But he doesn't end with this, and we're going to wrap up here, right? He doesn't just end with this new we, and it's not just that you're in a new family. It's actually that you are in a new household. Check this out in verse 19. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, this is a, um, just a model um, of uh, what first century Jerusalem would have looked like, uh, and you can see the, the sheer size of the temple in relationship to the city. It's pretty big, right? Uh, is the temple pretty important? Yep, pretty. Pretty important, right? Uh, Jewish religion uh, is integrated into the building. By the way, in modern-day Jerusalem, right, now on on the, the platform there, no longer stands a temple that was destroyed in 8070. Uh, it is now the Dome of the Rock. And so there's this tension between Muslims and Jews because the Jews are not allowed in this place. And so much of their hope and faith and religion is tied to the building. In fact, the only place that they can go and touch this building is on the Western Wall out this next picture, right? This is like excavated down the western wall. It's called the the Wailing Wall because it's where modern-day Jews go to pray and ask that God make the world right. Because the world is not right in their mind because they don't have the temple. It's around a building. But guys, guess what? They missed something. Check out this next picture. This is the southwest corner of modern-day temple. Temple Mount. Underneath of that, about 40 feet in the ground, would be this big, massive stone that the builders called the cornerstone. And what they did is they found the right stone with the right thickness and the right shape and they put it there, and in so doing, they were able to build this way, and build that way, and build up. And yet, what we know is that Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. You see, Jesus isn't concerned about a building or worship services, he's concerned about a body, he's concerned about a people, and that he is building into a brand new household that's filled with this whole new family who embrace and celebrate the differences of each other. And here's what's interesting. As we come to this, this is why the gospel is so important. Do we really believe that this is true? Because oftentimes, what we experience are these walls that we build in the church. And we build them, and they become divisive, and we grow hostile towards each other, right? That's a real thing. God is, Jesus is building up a new temple. Guys, people all over, over the United States are leaving the church. And if you know those people, encourage them to stick around, and here's why. Because the church is the primary vehicle in which God wants to do work in this world, encourage them to stay. Here's the tension, is that the church is also filled with a bunch of people who don't fully understand the gospel, which makes this tension hard. But this is why the gospel is so important, that we remove the pretense, we remove all of the things that are barriers, all of the things that divide us, and we make it about one thing, we say we're about Jesus and his family together, right? I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and as they do, I want to give you three quick, challenges that I think that the American church really needs to embrace in these next years. One, we need to elevate the gospel. We need to have such a high view of the gospel as the primary. We need to understand it and live it out, elevate it. I love these quotes uh, from John Chrysostom uh, in the FCA. It says this one. It says, in the essentials, what we need is unity. Guess what the essentials are? The gospel. In the essentials, we need unity. In non-essentials, we need charity but in all things we need Jesus Christ. And I love the EFCA's stance on this as a church, our, our denomination that says that we will debate and we will discuss, but we will not divide. We need to elevate the gospel. Keep it the main thing. Number two, we need to elevate the local church. Because you and I are a part of a local body of believers who is the primary conduit that God says, I want to work in you and through you in this broken world. And we need to gather in meaningful relationships and fellowship together. And the last one uh, is this, is that we need to elevate diversity. Instead of looking at the ways in which things are divided, that you and I look at those things, we celebrate them together because it's in the collection of all things that make us diverse is that the church is complete. And we are unified in one thing. Jesus brought peace to us by tearing down the wall, by tearing it down, and by creating a whole new family. I love it, you know, thinking about Salem. As people come here and we say, hey, welcome to Salem. We are a church that's filled with all sorts of jobs and practices, and we have all sorts of personalities and spiritual gifts, and we have all sorts of fun things in our lives, and we have all sorts of unique struggles. But guess what? We are a family, and we believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be tugging at our hearts and that you would be reminding us of the one thing that is most important in this life and that is Jesus that we would break down, that we would see this wall that has been broken down between us and that we would be peacemakers, people who go over to the other side and and instead of looking for ways to divide and being insecure and and all this stuff, but that we would cross boundaries for the sake of the gospel inside of the church right here at Salem and that we would also cross boundaries with other churches and connect and and share and rejoice in the joy that is the large sea church that we'd be about one thing, and that is Jesus. Lord, keep our hands busy with the work of the gospel so that we'd stop building walls between us. Amen.